Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? he asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because of what you have done, because of you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, Jezreel, and also over Ephraim. Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zariah, and David's men went and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, Let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. 
Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammar, near Giah, on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their brothers? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued the pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight any more. And all that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the whole Bithron, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab returned from pursuing Abner and assembled all his men. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjaminites who were with Abner. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. It is quite a story. Uh, Mark, thank you for reading it to us so well and for coping with all the names. And uh, good evening. Uh, let me add my welcome to you after Tim has welcomed you. It's good to have you here. Uh, do keep the Bible open at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 2. It's on page 305 in the Pew Bibles. And I hope you received on the way in a handout in the middle of the bundle you were given. You'll find that, I think, helpful to know where we're going in the next few moments. As we turn to God's word, let me pray for us. Father, we are very aware tonight that we need your help as we come to your word, not just to understand it, but also to believe it, and not just to believe it, but to believe it in such a way that it transforms our lives, that we are changed by tonight. And so in our need, we cry out to you. We ask that you would send your spirit to be at work amongst us uh, through your word, uh, bringing about that kind of belief and transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all have decisions to make. Some are small, like as we walked into the room tonight where we should sit, That's a a small decision. Of course, there are many uh, bigger decisions we have to make in life. Uh, Things like uh, what we should study at school or at at uni, Uh, where we'll live in the future, Uh, what kind of job we will have in the future, 
will we marry? Um, all these kinds of decisions uh, we have to face in life. And um, the bigger the decision, often the more time we spend fretting and worrying about that decision because we don't want to make the wrong decision. We want to ruin our lives in some way. But tonight, we're going to see that there is one decision facing each one of us that towers over any other decision we might face in this world. It will have a far bigger impact on us than where we live or where we work or who we marry. It is the decision about who will be our king. We're looking at a a large chunk of 2 Samuel tonight. Uh, Yes, chapter 2, and Mark, thank you again for reading. But um, we're actually looking at a wider chunk that runs up through to the beginning of uh, chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. And it's important that we take all three chapters together as one unit because they're all part of uh, one particular stage in the life of David. If you see in the handout, I've tried to show you how this little section of 2 Samuel works together. Um, So in the box on the handouts, you'll see in the top line that it begins with David being anointed king over Judah. Then at the bottom of the box, final line, at the end of our section, chapter 5, David is anointed king over all of Israel, not just Judah. But those two big key moments that bookend this section, the crowning of of David and Judah and the crowning of David over all of Israel, uh, those two moments are seven years apart and lots happens in between. And we'll discover tonight, as we heard, that Ish-bosheth is crowned king in defiance of David and then follows a terrible civil war that we've begun to read about tonight. I've called that the folly of human scheming. At the end, Ish-bosheth is killed, leading into David being anointed king over all Israel. It is quite a story. We won't have time to cover all the details tonight. Do read it through if you can this coming week. You'll have a great read. But the one big thing to see through this whole section is that these three chapters are all about a time in David's reign when he is king, but his reign is disputed, opposed by Ishbosheth and others. And the big question hanging over this section of 2 Samuel is this which king will the people serve? King David? Or his rival, Ishbosheth. That's the big question. Which king will they serve? And tonight, sitting here some 3,000 years later, we face a very similar question. Because King David is a shadow pointing us forward to the true King Jesus. And Jesus is king of the world now, but his reign is opposed throughout this world. And we too have a decision to make. Will we follow God's true king or will we follow some other king or ruler in this world? And many people today dispute the reign of Jesus. Perhaps they follow another human leader who calls for their allegiance. Perhaps it is the master that is money and all that money can buy. Or maybe it is simply living for themselves first and foremost. Either way, many people today choose to serve another king, another master over King Jesus. And so the question for us tonight, 
whether we are brand new to Christian things or we've been Christian for many years, which king will we serve? And we'll see tonight it is the most urgent and decisive question we will ever face. Which king will we serve? Well, you'll see in the handout, our first point is this, the gracious offer of God's king. Look at verse one. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? Remember, last week we heard about the death of Saul, who had been the first king of Israel. The throne is now vacant, and you can imagine David becoming a bit twitchy because David has already been promised by the Lord that he will be the next king of Israel. And so you can imagine him sort of wondering what will happen next. But, but notice how humble he is. He inquires of the Lord, verse one. Where shall I go? And notice again at, at the end of verse one, um, he asks again, where shall I go? And, and the Lord answers, Hebron. And we're being reminded again, aren't we, that David is a man after God's own heart. He is God's king a humble man who listens to the Lord, so unlike Saul, who did not inquire of the Lord. And so the big moment comes, verse four. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. I was never a big fan of geography. I dropped it at school as soon as I could. But geography here really matters. One of you noticed that verse one, David is to go to Hebron. Verse three, David settles in Hebron. Uh, Verse four, just in case we missed it, David is anointed in Hebron. Hebron's really important. Why Hebron? Because David is not the first person in the Bible to pack up all his family and belongings, all his men, and to move countries and to settle down In Hebron, Uh, last term, we looked at the book of Genesis and Abraham, and he was that man, and his home was Hebron. And at Hebron, the Lord made some wonderful world-changing promises to Abraham about how he would bless Abraham's descendants, make them into a great nation, and they would be a blessed nation under God's rule. Hadn't quite come to pass yet, but here in David's day as he is God's man arriving in Hebron, becoming God's king in Judah, I think we're meant to be excited because through this man, surely God is gonna be at work to bless the nation of Israel and to bring about his promises. And sure enough, look at the first thing the new king does. He sends a messenger, verse five, on the 1000 BC equivalent of an election campaign trip up north to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. The author reminds us that uh, these men had been loyal to the old king Saul. In fact, at great personal risk, they had done a very brave thing by rescuing Saul's body from the shame of being hung on a wall by the Philistines. And they brought his body back and buried it in honor. But now their beloved king Saul is dead. Who would the people of Jabesh-Gilead now serve? And David's message to these men is basically a pitch to become their new king. And it is a really good pitch. Look at verse six. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness 
and I too will show you the same favor. In other words, uh, no hard feelings for having loved my enemy, Saul. And then David says something extraordinary, verse seven. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead. Just imagine the, the people of Jabez Gilead, if you can um, picture the context. I guess it was a bit like being in occupied France in 1940, just after the Germans had uh, taken over your country and uh, your leaders were toppled. Yeah, there was no obvious hope of being uh, liberated. And someone somehow gets a letter to you saying, uh, be strong and brave, don't worry, it's going to be fine, I'll come and sort it out. Uh, you, you wonder, well, How? Um, David is 70 miles to the south. In between David and the men of Jabesh Gilead is a, a Philistine army occupying the country. And uh, they have every reason in the world to be afraid and not strong because uh, they're overwhelmed by the enemy. And yet David says, verse seven, the house of Judah has anointed me over them. In other words, the new king, God's king, King David, says to people who used to follow the old king, who might have been his enemies, he says to these men, come, let me be your king. I will show you favor. I will look after you and protect you. Be strong and brave knowing that I will be your king if you will let me. And so instead of sending an army to Jabesh Gilead to whip these possible rebels into shape, David extends a gracious offer And as readers sort of watching on, we want to be crying out, do it, take it, it's a good offer. He's a good king, he's going to do well for you, he'll defeat your enemies. The gracious offer of God's king. After last week, I know some of you were asking a very good question about why we're saying that David and his kingdom is a model or a shadow of King Jesus and his kingdom? Good question. Why, why make that link between David and Jesus? Well, very simply, that's what the Bible does. We'll see in a few weeks in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God promised to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever as an eternal king. And centuries later, when Jesus is born, again and again in the New Testament, we are reminded he is David's son his descendant, and he is the eternal king who sits on the throne forever. And so it's right for us to see in David a foretaste, a picture of God's coming king, the Lord Jesus. And so for those uh, who accept uh, this king, King David, it's a picture of um, the kind of dynamic under King Jesus. Remember the uh, the words of Jesus we looked at last week when he arrived to begin his ministry? He didn't come with an army to crush a rebellion. He came with a message of good news, of life and of hope. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, a gracious offer from God's king to the world. And for any who would turn and accept Jesus as their king, they enter into kingdom life and all its wonderful blessings of forgiveness and eternal life that are freely available. Please don't miss the offer of a gracious king. And I think looking at um, David's grace back to 
the, the rebels in Jabesh Gilead, as we understand what it meant that he was saying, look, the past is past. I'll welcome you into the kingdom if you'll let me be king. When we understand how kind that was of David's, it just helps us to understand something of the grace of the Lord Jesus who entered into a hostile world and said, good news, I've come to put the world to rights if you'll turn and trust in me. So what would the men of Jabesh Gilead do with such a gracious offer? We're not told explicitly what happens, but we're told enough to know in verse eight. Meanwhile, at the same time, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanem and made him king. It seems David's gracious offer had not been well received up north. And that takes us to our second point, the foolish rejection of God's king. I know that lots of people have been trying to guess the name of the new royal baby this week, but I haven't heard among the various um, proposals the name we find in verse eight of our reading, Ish-bosheth. Now, apart from being a slightly unusual name to our modern ears, uh, the name actually means man of shame. And you wonder how his parents uh, came about to give him that name. Uh, Whether or not that was actually his real name, we don't know for certain. But the author wants to show us uh, how we should respond to this rival king. He is a shameful king. He should not have been made king at all. It's foolish, this rejection of God's true king. And then there is Abner, uh, the man pulling all the strings behind this rebellion. Uh, In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 3, 9 and 10, the the references there on the handout over the page, Abner lets slip that he knew all along that David would be the next king of Israel. And so here in chapter 2, when he uh, pushes Ishbosheth onto the throne, he knows all along that that was not God's will or promise for the people of Israel. He knew what God's will was, and he chose to simply defy it to follow his own schemes. And uh, so often when people give an account for why they reject God's king, Jesus, they often describe it in terms of intellectual or philosophical problems, uh, a lack of evidence perhaps. But may I suggest very often the real issue is the issue of Abner in 2 Samuel. He just did not want God's king to be his king. He much preferred his own man, but it is foolish to think that such a plan will ever work, as we'll see. And so straight away we're seeing how foolish this rejection of God's king is. The name of the king, Ishbosheth, a man of shame. We're seeing Abner, who knew all along it was the wrong plan. But the biggest way in which we see the foolishness of rejecting God's king is how the narrative unfolds in the next two chapters. And the rest of chapter two gives us a flavor. Uh, These are hard chapters to read. There's a sense of uh, futility, of frustration as we see um, death. In fact, all the main characters in the next few chapters die. Verse 12 
Abner decides to take an army south and he invades David's land. Joab, David's commander, heads out to defend against the attack and the armies meet at the Pool of Gibeon. And what happens next is almost comical if it wasn't so tragic. Two armies put forward 12 young men each to act as representatives for the armies. Whoever wins the duel wins the day. But in an almost sort of Shakespearean twist, all 24 young men somehow happen to kill each other at just the same point. They all fall down dead. Not a single one wins the duel. And it, it just feels futile. Nothing's been gained by the death of 24 men. We're back to square one when it comes to who wins the battle. Well, a battle does ensue. Um, Asahel, uh, the fleet-footed brother of Joab, latches on to Abner. And again, it's almost comical as they shout back and forth to each other, you stop running. No, 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 you stop running. And, uh, and yet the race continues until Asahel does stop running tragically as he's impaled on the spear of Abner and he dies. And again, it just feels needless, the death, tragic. The armies have a big standoff and Abner cries out in verse 26, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize this will end in bitterness? Which again is, is, is rather comical because Abner was the one who started the whole thing in the first place. If you poke the bear, don't be surprised if the bear chases you. But a truce is agreed and the armies head home, but there is no lasting peace. The war continues. Uh, in chapter 3, Ishbosheth and Abner have a big row over a concubine. Abner storms off and betrays Ishbosheth by joining David, uh, not through any loyalty to David, but simply out of a good career move for Abner. Uh, meanwhile, Joab, still seething over the death of his brother, finds a way to murder Abner, and he dies. And although Joab doesn't die straight away, he will eventually be executed for his cold-blooded murder of Abner. At the same time, the puppet king Ishbosheth, the man of shame, now weakened by the absence of Abner, is exposed to a coup and two thugs from the army of Saul um, kill him, Banah and Rechab. And then just like the Amalekite in chapter one, these two thugs in turn get executed by David for striking down a king. And so by the end of chapter four, all the main characters are dead. The 24 young men the fleet-footed Asahel, the scheming Abner, Ishbosheth, the man of shame, the two army thugs, and soon also Joab. And it was all so unnecessary. If only they had accepted the gracious offer of God's king. Everyone stays safe. But in the sort of gruesome reality of the narrative, and it is hard to read through to kind of know who's right and wrong at times, but in the reality of the narrative, uh, we are seeing something very important. When people reject God's king, chaos ensues. Sin abounds. Humans pursue their own agendas for glory and fame, thinking that somehow they can do better by rebelling. And in such times... It may not always be clear who the victims are and who the perpetrators are, but isn't that what it's like to live in the chaos of this fallen world where God's king is rejected? 
Sometimes people commit terrible sins against others. Sometimes people are terribly sinned against. But either way, it's chaos. And the big point, I think, of the narrative of these chapters is that we are seeing through the chaos how foolish it is to reject God's king. Human scheming, human power plays, they might seem so wise for a time, but they never work. And today, as people reject Jesus, it's no surprise to see the same futility and suffering in our world, whether it's in the war in Syria or closer to home in the office politics with all its backstabbing and subtle power plays or even in the school playground. There is futility and suffering when God's king is rejected. Uh, These deaths in T. Samuel show us there will also be a day of reckoning for such rebellion as those who are involved in the coup die. And um, a number of you have been asking, and very helpfully again after last week, just questions around how uh, the God of the Old Testament feels so harsh and violent. There's so much bloodshed in T. Samuel. And it's just hard to somehow connect that God with the God of the New Testament. He seems uh, more forgiving, more gentle. And so it's a helpful question to think through. Well, how do we connect the God we see in the Old Testament with the God we know in the New Testament? I want to just say that here in T. Samuel, we're seeing that the God of the Old Testament, he's more gracious than we might imagine. That in and through David, he gives this wonderful offer of favor to the people of Israel. If only they would take it, all the bloodshed would be avoided. He's a gracious God. But also we must see that the God of the New Testament is a God who will judge rebellion against his son. I put a reference there on the handouts to a parable in Mark 12 that Jesus told about a vineyard owner who has rebellious tenants The tenants want the vineyard for themselves, so they murder the son, thinking they will inherit the vineyard. But such rebellion is short-sighted because the owner will come, and according to the lips of Jesus, he will kill the rebels. And so here in Mark 12, and indeed throughout the Gospels, Jesus himself is very clear that rebellion against God's king is very short-sighted, and judgment will come, partly in the chaos of this life, but fully when the king returns. And so the God of the Bible is consistent, consistently gracious, but consistently warning about judgment. And that is why it is such good news that Jesus came the first time, not with an army to crush a rebellion, but rather he came to die for rebels. For judgment must come on those who rebel, But on the cross, Jesus died in the place of rebels, graciously to bring us life and forgiveness. The foolish rejection of God's king. And finally, very quickly, our final point, the unstoppable reign of God's king. Throughout the chaos of these chapters, there is much uncertainty, but there is one certainty, Uh, That is God's promise to make David king over Israel. We get a little uh, update of how that promise is going in chapter three, verse one, if you just turn to that. 
uh, 3 verse 1, uh, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. God's promise coming to pass. And then finally, right at the end of our section tonight, chapter 5 verse 3. The elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron. And there we're told, and they anointed David king over all Israel. Ishbosheth dreamt of being king. Abner dreamt of power. Asahel dreamt of glory by bringing down Abner. Banah and Rechab dreamt of a rich reward. Joab dreamt of revenge. But at the end of this section of 2 Samuel, the one plan that has come to pass is God's promise to make David king. Now back in chapter two, when David was made king over Judah, the kingdom looked so small. Just, just one tribe against 11 tribes. And you could almost scoff at the size of David's kingdom then. But by five verse three, his kingdom has grown. Now all 12 tribes And over the next few weeks, we'll see his kingdom growing in even more power and splendor as God establishes him as king. And we're seeing very clearly the unstoppable reign of God's king. And so there's great encouragement for us here tonight. We live in a time when God's king is opposed and God's kingdom seems very insignificant. In our class this week or in the office, we might well be the only Christian everyone else busy following a different king, maybe pursuing money and all the comforts and luxuries that come with it, the promise of a large house and a car and nice holidays, others pursuing the step up the career ladder, seeking to make a name for themselves. And so in that context, to speak about a king who rules over the world, it just sounds crazy. Who cares about that kind of kingdom? We can't even see it. But in Mark 4, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. I'm told there are 700 mustard seeds in one gram of weight. A tiny thing. But that tiny seed will grow into a great tree. And so, says Jesus, will the kingdom of God. We see it happening in David's day. Small beginnings, one tribe becoming 12, becoming a mighty kingdom. And how much more so under King Jesus? What starts off looking small, mocked by many, opposed by some, will one day be a mighty kingdom that none can ignore. We all have decisions in life that we must make. We fret and stress about our plans. We wonder, will I pass my exams? What job will I get? Will I marry? Will I I be popular and successful? What if I fail? What if I get to the end of my life and look back over it and think, have I done anything of any real significance? Life is full of questions. Our decisions do matter. But there is one decision which matters far more than any other. It is a decision about who will be our king. To have Jesus as our king is to be part of his kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be stopped, A kingdom where one day all the chaos and suffering that comes from living in this rebellious world will be done away with. A kingdom of eternal life, living in a perfect world under our perfect king. 
And even if we get every other decision in life wrong, to get this one decision right will more than make up for all the rest. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, this picture we have of what the kingdom of God is like. And we look, thank you for the grace and kindness of King David that points us to the grace and kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his kindness to us in his death on the cross. Uh, thank you for saving rebels who did not deserve him to be our king. And Father, please tonight give us great confidence that to follow King Jesus is the best decision we could ever make. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.